Howdy. What's up, man? Not much. Not much. How was your day in in the real estate world? Uh, I mean, good. You got a um, we have a listing, real nice listing here in Pacific Grove, and we were gonna uh, somebody just scheduled a showing to see it, which is nice. And uh, I'm not in favor of bringing houses to market during the holiday season, but I was talking to a colleague, another agent in our office. She made a fantastic point, which is, you know, I don't think that rule applies this year because nobody's Christmas is canceled. Nobody's doing anything for Christmas. Usually it's a horrible time to, to put a house on the market because so many of the buyers are going to be inundated with logistics and planning and everything that goes along with a Christmas season and, and celebrating Christmas, that they're not going to want to have to go through or nor have the time to handle a real estate transaction, you know? And right. uh, they're, they're out there. There are people who do. Uh, and it's actually a great time to shop. You're willing to do it, but uh, most people aren't. And so when you're on the listing side trying to sell a property, not, not ideal, not the best. But um, that rule might not apply this time. That being said, it is kind of dead right now, buyers-wise. There's not a lot of buyers going on. And uh, although we just got new buyers, which is nice, and uh, referred to us by past clients. That's how this business works. That's the best way. It's referrals. Um, at least that's how... We do it, but, um, yeah, past the, uh, past clients referred their friends and they're moving from San Francisco down to here. And, uh, they seem like really good buyers, really good. You know, you get certain clients who have really unrealistic expectations. They think they can have the moon for under a million dollars. It's like, get the hell out of here. No, you know? You're not going to get a view in, in, in a 3,000 square foot house and in Carmel. It's not happening for that. You know, you need to bring your price point up. And usually it takes a while for buyers, especially inexperienced buyers, to understand that. You know, they have to, they get acquainted with the market. They see things and then, and then eventually they come around and they're like, maybe it's not. For, and sometimes they're just, um, you know, they just got, you know, um, Eventually, they come around. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just give up. Some people just say, you know what? Maybe this isn't right for me. Can't afford a house here. And they should pick a different area. And that sucks if you spend a lot of time on somebody. But that's this business. There's no guarantees. And then others, they kind of... Like, we got a young couple right now. We just got them into their second escrow. And they really, really need to buy a house because she's pregnant with her... Maybe they actually had the second baby already. When I when I saw them, they were pregnant. And I can't remember the last time I showed them property. Uh, my mother must uh, showed this latest one, but uh, I negotiated and got them into uh, the first escrow, and they love the house. But when we looked under the hood, there was all sorts of integral problems and suspicions, and we decided it was an, it was a lemon. We'd walk away from it. And uh, did the home inspector, sorry to cut you off. Did the home inspector find that or 
or just looking around the house you guys found it uh, yeah home inspector because the the couple the lovely young couple that owned the house they'd fix it up themselves and did all the touches and they may they mainly did the aesthetic the aesthetic touches and they neglected taking care of uh you know the internal the internal issues that you don't see the guts, the guts. yeah all the important stuff that can cause you even more headache if you leave it neglected. Yeah, you know, when you tear up all that nice tile and flooring you put down to get to your plumbing. Well, it could have a set of, it could seem like good bones as far as structure. You got good bone structure, but those bones could be going through osteoporosis if you get my drift. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious what your thoughts are, and if I, I don't know if in the area that you're in, if you see it, and if it's perhaps more just something that we see here. But are you seeing a lot of sellers that are saying they're they're packing up and leaving the state? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the first properties. Well, I guess we sold this property back in May. It was uh, one block away from Ocean View Boulevard here in PG. And where it's situated happens to be where there's an intersection uh, for um, Ocean View Boulevard and this other street, whatever. So there's this break in the property lines. And they have this wonderful view of the entire Monterey or most of the Monterey Bay all the way out to Seaside City Lights. The, C the City Lights of Seaside for, for nighttime. It's a great view. Fantastic. Petite house, real small, under a thousand square feet, easy, and one bedroom, one bath, but just a nice little charming getaway. Couple ended up buying it. They were from Loomis, and but our clients, they they had it. They were they lived full time in Lodi, and that this was their little getaway was coming down here, and uh, they had it. Yeah, they uh, after the the shutdowns and the economy crashed. They were kind of already sick and tired of the California baloney and 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 political climate that is. And so right. they had already been eyeballing other areas. And uh that was kind of the final straw when the economy and the and the markets were starting to crash and they're like, we don't want this property to to die, to lose its value. Um, because we don't have a lot of faith in the future of California. And so we don't want to hold on to it while it's tanking and its value essentially was the idea. And they were, they'd been considering the sale uh, for, they'd been on the fence about leaving for a couple of years. So that was the final straw. We actually were prepared to list the same property the previous year, but decided it wasn't the right time and they weren't ready to leave. And, but that one was it. So we listed it and it went quick right in the middle of the pandemic and the shutdowns, we were able to sell this listing when uh, it was real. This protocols were extremely strict. At one point, they weren't allowing showings, people coming in, because it, it's like, you have to make an appointment, you have to sign this, this liability form called a PEAD now, which stands for, I don't know what it stands for. I've I always just docu-sign it. I've never actually read the stupid document. All it matters is, is basically <laughs> it's like if you catch COVID, it's, you can't sue anybody, right, uh, from, from the showing and who's involved in the right. showing, whether it be either brokerage room or whatever. So you sign it and 
you release your liability if you catch it. As right. if it would be, you know, I don't know. I guess they could, what's it called? When they, they, they track persons back to who, who is the patient zero or whatever they, they do the, I can't remember. Oh, tracing. Tra- yeah. tracing it. I guess they could trace it back to yeah. us if we actually gave it to one of our clients, but <clears throat> not me. I'm never getting tested. Never again. I'm never <laughs> be able to get it back to me. Uh, no, uh, they, uh, so back then, yeah, it was real strict. It was like only two people in at a time. That means if you had a couple, the agent would only be able to take one person in at a time. And then the other person, like everybody had to wear gloves, obviously mask. You had to sanitize before and after, uh, you couldn't touch anything, meaning you couldn't open up closet doors or drawers or anything to look inside. So if they wanted to see inside a closet, that that door was meant to be left open uh, for that uh, blinds too. Like that so, it was like all these sounds a little uh, yeah, all these crazy radical sounds a little ridiculous precautions over the top. And it was in the middle of that when we were able to sell this. Listen, one last precaution they pulled on us later. Initially, it was okay, but then later they said uh, it has to be only vacant properties can be shown. So you can't have people who live and occupy the property who say, okay, yeah, you want to show it. We'll take a drive for the next hour and let you in. Like, no, not allowed to show those houses because people actually live in there and droplets could be whatever they're thinking, right? Virus could be. So uh, it had to be vacant houses and it got strict enough where the vacant houses can't have, um, no signs of people actually living there for part-time, essentially. So our clients had to clean up the refrigerator and all this shit to make it truly vacant that they aren't using anymore And uh, before we could let people in. But we were in the middle of that. We were able to sell it, and it went above ask, all cash, like seven-day close, one of the dream scenarios, 10-day close maybe, dream scenario, you know. And, uh, so things were really crazy in this area in particular in the summertime, because the theory was you had a lot of people leaving the Bay area and saying, fuck this. Why are we putting up with this maelstrom of, of, you know, chaos and and just ugliness and whatever there's traffic and. And just not as fun when I could get something for cheaper. A lot of, you get a house in a lot of these areas in the Bay Area, a normal suburban type style house can get you a pretty cool little pad, you know, with a view and shit in this area. You know, you can get a front row, like a front row seats to the Monterey Bay, Ocean View Boulevard and Pacific Grove would cost less for the same house of the same size in a normal Palo Alto neighborhood. That's kind of shocking to me. I would, I would think it'd be the opposite just cause I, again, I, I was, well, not again, but I was never a big fan of the, the Bay area and I just can't fathom living, yeah. living there unless well, it's I, I used, to I used Palo Alto in particular because that's may, maybe the most expensive of the Bay areas. It's Stanford, you know, University of Stanford. But, um, yeah. and I actually happened to know that market a little bit, but, uh, cause it was crazy 
it was crazy back in 2016. Fuck. Palo Alto was insane. Kind of thing where you put a house on the market. All right. And before you did so, you did all the inspections as the, as the, as the sellers. And you put out your message. Basically, whoever's going to make an offer, make it all cash, zero contingencies, 10, 10 day close and highest and best would win. And you'd get like 15 offers in on one house in Palo Alto. Be way over ask all cash, zero contingencies, quick seven day close. And that was the kind of market. Wow. It was, it was insane. And talk wow. about a seller's market, but <clears throat> that slowed down, you know, 17, 18, 2018, something like that. And, but when things are really hot and they were kind of, they never get that wild in this, in this area, in the Monterey Peninsula, but it was pretty insane. It was pretty fast paced for a while here. We had more houses contingent than we did. We still do actually, I think we have more, we might have more. No, 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 no. I don't think so anymore. But for a time, we had more houses contingent, meaning in escrow, than we did actively listed, not in escrow. Because houses would come on the market mm. and they would get plucked up real quick. And that was in the summer of this year. And mm. I think, yeah, a lot of that is, I had a lady, she worked for Facebook um, and uh, Kiwoba, if she's listening, Kiwoba. Uh, she walked in and, and just a real pleasant lady. And back then she wasn't actually able to walk in again, COVID protocols in the office. So I had front desk, which is when you have somebody come in. The idea is that when somebody calls the office, you man the phone, the desk and phone, and you can, you can get potential clients. You're also supposed to be able to provide service to, and be open just like any business should to, to help people, even if they're not going to be your potential client. But the idea and the incentive is you can pick up clients this way. It used to be a very effective way. It's still kind of, I mean, it can be. Um, best clients I've ever got. My favorite clients to this day. And, and I love them. They're personal, great friends of mine. I always think they'll be, you know, I always intend to keep a close personal friendship with them. I love them. Uh, met them on floor. Happened to walk in, you know, and that's what we call floor time. And uh, anyway, so uh, she walked up back then. They weren't allowed inside. So we had like the velvet rope or whatever blocking the front entry. But the doors were open so they could <laughs> see that it was open. And she asked the questions like, hey, right. what do you have? What's on the market here? And, and I got all this stuff. And, but anyways, she was living in shit. Oh, is Freeport a place? I feel like Freeport might be a place in, in the Bay Area. I can't think. Maybe. Freeport. <sighs> that, I don't yeah. know. It rings a bell. It's, 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 it's Freeport. an area. It starts with an F, I think. It's a Bay Area, and it's close to Mountain View, and, and, and it's definitely in Silicon Valley. But it's, it's just shit, man. It's just shit living there, you know? There's, it's just no, no style no beauty. And she was complaining. I like, there's zero restaurants there that are worth a damn. And, uh, her thing is like, I'm, I'm going to be working. She works for Facebook and they had announced that they aren't going to have people coming back to work office wise for a year huh. at that point. So she's like, I'm going to be working from home 
at least the next year. And the idea is just like, might as well do it in a place you, you love. You don't have to live in that place. You can do it in a house in, a, in an area where you can actually enjoy it. And, you know, it's beautiful. I think we have the best air quality in the country in the Monterey Peninsula. I've heard that at least. And it truly is really great air quality. But yeah. So you had a lot of tech people who are working from home or figured and they're wealthy enough where they can buy houses here. No problem. Yeah. Why not? You know, and then Exodus wise. Yeah. You get people who are also leaving. You you had a lot of, you know, whose market went crazy, crazy, crazy. Five million and up houses, five million up had an all time, all time year. And they did it in like three months. Like our, our top. Yeah. Why do you, I was just going to say, why do you think that that price range, what what was attractive about it? I think people with, there are two types of minds among the uber rich. There's one school that looks at the shutdowns and all this stuff and says, this isn't good for the economy and I'm liquidating all of my holdings here and especially in California, perhaps and repositioning right. themselves or waiting to see maybe hold in cash and wait to see. And before they get enough clarity, when the dust settles, deciding which direction they want to go. So I do think a lot of very wealthy people were liquidating because they were uncertain about what, what's going on in the future. And so just out of a precaution, they cash their chips out and uh, and uh, uh, because the truth be told, my economic outlook for real estate uh, in the near future is very bleak. I, I remember saying like back in the summer, if I had real estate holdings, investments, that is, other than my personal house, and if I were like really wealthy and I had real estate holdings, I'm cashing out of all of my real estate holdings. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. I'm going into gold. I'm going into securities in the public markets. You know, I'm going into other things. I'm not maybe bonds, but I'm getting out of real estate because we're really topped out. We have, we have this long expansion and, uh, we've surpassed the previous highs from 2005 and um, and there just isn't a whole lot of room for it to go up. There's not a whole lot of reason for, for them to go up real estate values, but there are a fuckload of reasons why they could go down. And so just playing the probabilities, I'm doing that. So yeah. I would, uh, Kayla and I were talking about that today and I'm, I'm, I am not a, a real estate expert or a realtor or any, <laughs> any financial expert. Um, but we were just talking about that walking the dogs. Cause we're our, I guess what I'm getting as we're having a pretty big influx of people moving to Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just from California. It's probably, you know, the big, uh, metropolitan cities. 
uh, Seattle. I, you know, I heard heard people moving from even Colorado, moving to places like Wyoming, just just to get away and being like, "Hey, I'm not going to deal with these shutdowns for my school, or grass looks greener over here, or it's less strict." Which, in reality, it it sounds to me like California is kind of having the same protocols that Montana is. We're still wearing masks in all the stores. Some people protest and go into store, you know, Lowe's, Home Depot, whatever, not wearing a mask just because they're, they want to be slick, whatever. I don't know. I don't want to get into that part of it, but um, it doesn't sound too different besides the recent uh, call by your governor there in California, Gavin Newsom, to keep restaurants shut down or businesses, restaurants. Is it all businesses or just restaurants shut down for uh, the, the, I don't know how long it is. I haven't really been paying attention. I do know that he did shut down all restaurants, all out outdoor dining, which makes zero sense. There's zero science to back that up. It's just trying to destroy. I think Gavin Newsom uh, and the elite class, they're trying to squeeze out the middle class. Because if you squeeze out the middle class and, and small mm. businesses out of our economy, who's there to fill the void of demand? Big corporations, the elites. I think that's the plan. That's why he's doing it. Makes no sense. I already talked. I already talked to you about in the previous one of the previous podcasts about uh, the WHO strongly advises against shutdowns. Against them, strongly advises against them. Has to be a last last resort. Like you got no other choice but this. We're not there. In Monterey County, the the rule that they said, if we hit a level where we only have 15% vacancies in our our hospital ICO capacities, then they do the shutdowns. Well, in Monterey County, we don't have that. We're not even at that. We have, we're under, uh, we have more than 15% capacity in our ICUs. So we haven't hit that threshold yet. Still, he shut us down. And um, there's just... A lot of, from what we found and and have learned about this virus, the studies, these shutdowns don't necessarily are as effective as we all thought they would be, too. I remember in New York, they had the strictest lockdowns in New York City. And weeks and weeks and weeks, they find, find out that more and more people are catching COVID. And it's the people who are staying indoors the most who are catching COVID. Because the sunlight gives you vitamin D. Vitamin D deficiency was prominent among, and from the initial studies of the of the severe cases of COVID nineteen, like eighty six percent of the ice of people in the ICU, the severe cases of COVID, had vitamin D deficiencies, and where only four percent had sufficient vitamin D. So clearly, vitamin D is extremely important to combating this virus, or at least as a prophylactic for severity of the virus. And so, and that's just general right. common knowledge. Sunlight, whether it's the flu or common cold, for many illnesses, getting vitamin E, getting some sunlight, even if it's just to lift your spirits, lifting your spirits and having and being in, in a good mood, it strengthens your immune system. And when you're, ho- ho- you're in your hovel in the darkness and not allowed to come outside and it's just extremely gloomy. People get depressed and by nature, they get less healthy and their immune systems are weakened and, and they become far more vulnerable to diseases. And so uh, also sunlight kills the virus, direct UV, uh, UV sunlight kills the virus like pretty much instantaneously. So any contact with the sun, with actual sunlight, this is why they do the, uh, 
those UV, those UV lights are popular. You, you kind of, you can put them, you know, scan them over, over surfaces to kill the virus. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Those, those are, those are kind of cool too. That was a, that was something I just recently found out. Um, I think like 2017, 2018 for, uh, I don't remember if I ever told you, but I was, I was doing the sensory deprivation tanks and that's one of the filtering processes that the water goes through is a, a UV light. I don't remember how many parts per million and how fast it goes and all that stuff, but it's just interesting to me that that's a technology and they're finding that UV light has uh, antimicrobial mm. properties to it. Yeah. It's kind of cool, but, but uh, more, more, sorry to cut you off and, and not to redirect, but more of, I guess what I was curious about besides telling people don't run to Montana to, to solve your problems. Cause I, no. I don't yeah. think it's going to solve them. And, uh, also it's, it's dark and gloomy and cold <laughs> about eight months out of the year here. If Thank not, you ambassador if not of, of Montana. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, I'm don't not come sure here. It sucks. Me, okay. Anybody. <laughs> Why are you there? I'm, oh, I, you know, I don't, I don't I want no to choice. I don't know. No, I, go ahead. Sorry. No, I don't. I don't want to be that person, uh-huh. dude. I'm a transplant myself, so I'm not. I'm not going to be the person. Saying, not, yeah, get out of here. Your kind's but, not uh, welcome around no, here. No, I just. We don't like your kind. Right? No, I'm just. I'm just. I'm just being honest. Of of of. Uh, somebody told me one time, wherever you go, there you are, and it took a long time for that to click in my head. But I, I, I think it rings pretty true. And there, there's times where it's like, yeah, I I love warm climates. I. I wouldn't mind being back in Southern California mm. or even Florida. We talked about that, but my, my question for you is, do you, cause Kayla and I, what we're talking about is, and I'm just curious, you know, who's, who's coming and buying all these homes here that they're one, they're buying them in pretty rough areas, like areas that if you were to be like, Hey John, I'll buy you a house here. I don't think I would take it. I don't think I'd go live in it. Cause I don't like that area. I'd be depressed. I'd, I'd be looking to brush my teeth with my mm. pistol, dude. It's uh, <laughs> it's just kind of a, it's just not an area I'd want to live and not why I moved to Montana. But at any rate, these places are getting bought out, um, um, sight unseen for over asking price. And it's kind of making it so like locals and Montanans like can't afford a house. So I'm curious, who do you just, and I, I don't expect you to know the answer to this, but who do you think these buyers are? People that are just cashing out on everything or still making money on their house in, say, California or Washington or something and coming to buy these places? Because they're really not cheap. Homes here going for a, like a one-bedroom, one-bath, I think pre-COVID was uh, going for wow. 360 That's fucking expensive. And, and, yeah. I don't think. Yeah, I, I would have been better off yeah. buying a house in San Diego. Uh, I but college town, um, the dynamics of, of every real estate market is unique. And so what drives the value for, uh, a given real estate market, again, location, 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 that's what they say. And it's hundred percent true location, location, location. That's, that's why on ocean view Boulevard front row seats to the, to the, to the bay, you're you're gonna get fetch easily over a million dollars more easily than you for the same exact house that you would for one just behind it and the parcel behind it. And so it's a, a clearly about location. Right. What gives a given location value is is what the question is. Well, in in this area, it's the beauty, it's the 
it's the climate, the temperature, you know, the climate, it's uh, the lifestyle that it, it offers to, to a certain demographic, i.e. retirees, elderly types, mainly restaurants, spas, country clubs, golf courses too, obviously. Um, just, you know, fine, fine, fine shopping too for, you know, bougie stuff. So you get all that, you get all that stuff. Um, there is, so when you think of Missoula, what, what gives Missoula's location so much value and for, for any, most places, every, and every, every real estate, every location, what gives it value, why people want to live there. One of the driving factors needs to be more times than not is industry. Unless you're in a touristy place like this in Monterey, industry, what is the industry? How is wealth being produced and created in this area to substantiate and justify people living there and starting lives there? And so in Canton, Ohio, it might be, you know, uh, a number of, you know, a number of factories. You have a great industry of factories that go here. So people, they, they work for GM or wherever, and they're building cars and, and now they need a house to, to, to live in. And they want to get their husband or wife, uh, you know, a house of their dream and they're raising kids. Now we need schools. We need services for these people, you know, shopping, gross. And next, you know, we, we need commercial, commercial real estate comes of value. So, but at the root of all of it, is is it is uh, industry? Where, where are we producing wealth? How is it being done in this given area? And in Monterey, we have military. We have some academia, colleges, universities. We have Middlebury Institute, and which is a world-renowned business school. And and uh, um, we have NPS, Naval Postgraduate School here. We have uh, DLI, Defense Language Institute. So very military heavy, heavy here. Um, we have Monterey Bay, California yeah. State University of Monterey Bay. Uh, so you do have college a little bit. It's not a major, major driving industry. Tourism is. And the basically serve, the industry of serving the rich is an industry in itself over here. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm doing it at a different level than, than a waiter does, but I'm essentially doing the same thing, you know. And, uh, right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's servicing the rich here. And why? Cause the rich want to come and play and live and retire here. It's a world renowned area. People from all the, everywhere. If you're wealthy, will always want to live here because it's a unique, special slice of heaven on earth is the idea. And so that's it. But Missoula, you could kind of say that too. It's its own unique type of slice of heaven. It's, for the super wealthy, it's it's if you you might not be into or or you might be in the mood during certain parts of the year or whenever it strikes you to live on in that slice of heaven over Monterey base slice of heaven. If that makes sense. Missoula gives you that woodsy, ooh, yeah, uh, north North American close. You know, maybe you want to have the white Christmas and the snow and the log cabin and the cozy cozy fire and the, and the hot cocoa, or maybe you're a major fisherman or a, or a hunter and it's just ideal, you know, things like that. 
University is an industry in itself. We've already talked about. So Missoula, the Grizz, the Grizzlies, right? You got that University of Montana. Yeah. So you're going to have students who are going to uh, spend money to pay and justify, hopefully, uh, pay for, for all the jobs that that university uh, supplies. Uh, and they're also going to need to pay for their living exp expenses because they still have to. These college students, it might be shocking, but they're still eating. They're still drinking. They're still shitting. They're still sleeping, you know, and they need those things to facilitate, you know, so they're going to need a place to, to, to live and they're going to need food to eat. They're going to need booze to drink. And uh, so in a college town, owning a bar, a cool, a cool bar geared towards college kids could be a gold mine, you know, and uh, yeah, if it's, you know, done right and in the right place. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't been to Missoula, so I can't really properly define where the value in that location comes from precisely. But from what I can gather by its reputation, it has to do probably with that. And when you get enough rich fucks uh, like Jackson Hole is kind of probably a, co a competing type of town to Missoula. So which do you, uh, it, it's a matter of preference. It might be the, the alternative to Jackson Hole. Maybe uh, you're, you're really rich, but you're not that rich. You're not Jackson Hole rich. You're Missoula rich, you know? So for your vacation home right. in the woods over here, you're in, you know, for your hunting cabin, what you're, you're going to be in Missoula rather than Jackson. Jackson's just a little too expensive, you know? Yeah. Is there good skiing in the Missoula era area? Um, not being a skier, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure they're fairly close by. Um, and this is just kind of, yeah, I've been just curious about this more recently because, uh, no, to answer your question, I, I don't think close by there is, there's a place called snowball. There's a place called snowball. That's uh, fairly close. I've heard it's, I've heard it's good. I've never been their person. I'm also not a skier. Um, I've snowboarded, but I suck at it. And the only sport I've ever broken a bone at, Snowboard. but, uh, nice. yes. um, yeah. there's places snowboarding. Yeah. Um, there's places nearby. I would say that the recreation is big here, which is, and this is just my observation, but Missoula seems more like a place you come to live, you know, live within your means and do more recreation than move to get ahead unless you have some kind of a remote job or you buy a second home here, which I'm, I'm kind of wondering if that's what some of the people are doing, if they're retired and saying, I'm done with places like uh, California. Or Washington, I, I, no, I think, what, I think it's it just I simple as that. So just throw those. People who are done with the big city or are wealthy enough to have more than one place, but people who are done with the state, a given state like California, let's say, uh, uh, and if they have a special place, right. like for me, it's Miami. We've talked about it, right? For some people, it's Missoula, Montana. Yep. It's pretty straightforward. And there are yep. a lot more of them when, when you, you know, yeah. if you take all the people in the country whose dream it is to live in Missoula, uh, you might be surprised how large that number is. The question is how many of those people actually have the means to do it. And you're seeing that happen real time by seeing what the marketplace is, is giving you, right? You're saying there's lots of people coming in sight unseen, offering full cash above ask. And there's also that kind of shock factor too. 
if you come from a, a place like Palo Alto and you got their 2000 square foot house that cost you three and a half million dollars, or you sold it for, let's say three and a half million dollars. And then you're like, well, for just a quarter million dollars for 250, I can get a fucking ma mansion in Arkansas. You know, I'll take it, you know, no negotiation. I'll take it. You know, oh, you want me to pay a little, you know, so it's like the, go ahead. What? I love the, I was gonna say, I, I love those people that are, uh, I remember, and, and I've heard this way before COVID, way before any of this shit, like uh, being in San Diego and the people that are like, well, I'm going to go buy a mansion in, in Texas. Right. And it's like, well, fucking do it. <laughs> and dude, you're not going to be able to afford your, you probably can't even afford your $250,000 mansion in Texas. So why are you complaining about prices in California? And it's usually somebody that's, that's working at McDonald's or like the dollar store or something that, that I, I somehow overhear that. There's a reason. There is a reason why Go to that, Texas. See if that, that mansion only costs problems. a quarter million dollars in, in Arkansas because the location has very little value. And sometimes I, I, I shouldn't say this. Uh, I will. We had some clients. They're selling this house. I don't want to say where. Let's just say it was out of state in an arid area. Okay. And it was small town and they bought this property. I think it was about 10 acres and it's pretty massive. It was probably about, I bet you the house is probably like 3,500 square feet, 4,000 square feet. Aesthetically, probably the most hideous house I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. Okay. Uh, they <laughs> used to, used to have, it's hard to describe. They used to have, the garage doors meant like a two-story garage door. If that makes any sense. It was a tall garage. It was a two, like a warehouse. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Like for so an it RV was twice as tall as the normal garage parking. door yeah. roll up. And when they bought it, they didn't right. need that. So they converted right. it into living space. And when they redid the door, the guy just thought it was more practical Cause the guy, it's not his thing. He's not a, he's not a stylist. He's not a, you know, that's not, he's a very practical thinking guy. I love the guy, but you know, uh, but he used, he used commercial like retail glass door. Like you would see it like, you know what I'm saying? So imagine going, imagine uh, the doors at a I, gas station. I, the door, he used like that. You know, like an yeah, industrial, yeah, like office, uh, uh, commercial glass door for for his home, and it was just like, oh my gosh! You know, he didn't. That didn't. I'm, yeah, I I could see a nice. Uh, sorry to cut you off. I could see a nice custom <sighs> home having something like that. Where, but that's where the only thing in your it wasn't a garage anymore. Like, you know, like a nice it wasn't a garage. He converted it into regular driving. living space. But oh, that to oh. me was jarring. I looked at that. All I know is Weird. it was jarring. I was like, wow. That's uh, that's but ugly, and uh, you know the the the, the design um, the design touches choices for the kitchen and that they were just one antiquated and also in poor taste. This this they, they couldn't sell this this house to save their life. It was way 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 on it for honestly you they they should have planned to sell. What they should assess whatever the, the the value of the land was, the ten acres was whatever to come up with that number, 
and then minus how much it would cost to demo that that property plus a little extra because they're going to have to build a new house. That's that's the value of that property. <laughs> it literally hurt the value of the property greatly having a good house. Yeah, it's a disaster. Wow. Yeah. It, it, it okay. have it would have to take a real eccentric. Uh, I wish I could. I, house, I wish, you know, but anyway. <laughs> I wish I could picture because people do that shit in Southern California. There was a there was a guy I knew building a house in um, not building a house. He was renovating a house in, um, gosh, uh, La Jolla. Great, great view, great backyard and neighborhood, all that. La Jolla is a pretty nice area, but he was building a pool in the backyard. And he was putting up a roll-up type door in his living room, so he could, you know, essentially roll up the door and go right into the backyard, um, to the pool area, and you know, walk out on the deck and stuff like that. So it was, it was pretty cool, but it's just different. Like I've never had a roll-up door in in my house, or th- <laughs> it's not something you see a lot of. But I think he also had a um, a, a set intention with why he was doing it. He wanted oh, to try and film yeah. some kind of show there or something. I don't know if he ever did, but he was going to try and like, Oh, Oh, uh, won't say his name, but so-and-so oh, whatever, was called whatever, whatever floats and, your boat, and, uh, you know, what's you know? it like? Go ahead. Good. I cut you off. Yeah. No, I, I was, I was pretty much finished. I just said it was going to be, what's his name lives with uh, all these college chicks and let's see how it pans out. He was going to try and do some reality show of his own or something like that. But that was his intention with the garage door is walk out from the living room, right onto the deck and into the pool. And who knows, probably just trying to get, get to live with uh, naked chicks huh. since he was an old guy. So the roll up door guy, would help him get naked chicks. Me, is that what you're trying to say? Uh, no, I think he was just trying to, to, to trying to go with a certain theme of the house. Of here's this house. It's my bachelor pad that huh. I. It's just me and all these college chicks. And you go from you know, it's like a party pad. You roll right from the living room door, rolls up right into the backyard. Oh, nice. The deck it's just a fun. Like it was a, a fun area. Bar in the backyard. All right. Pool yeah, yeah, yeah. Sweet. Yes. Yeah. 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 That whatever it was. Yeah, I was just putting two and two together a buddy of mine did the did all the all the plumbing for his place very I was cool very cool with him one day but so um yeah I, yeah missoula why people move there yeah whatever the yeah i'm sure if they don't have skiing that's interesting i know jackson hole has skiing obviously aspen tell your ride i don't know if those areas tell your ride and and uh, Aspen are good for hunting and fishing. Pretty sure Jackson Hole is pretty great for hunting and fishing. You know, and so, um, and then obviously Missoula yeah. is probably very good for hunting and fishing, but it doesn't have the skiing. So you're getting the, the triple threat in Jackson Hole, you know, or quadruple because it's a very fancy place. But anyway, so, yeah, I don't know. So, gotcha. Well, some of the other places that uh, that aren't Missoula that people are buying, it's uh, they're buying in Butte, which is, I'm sure you know some of the history of Butte. I don't know all the history. It's actually kind of a fascinating place to me every time I stop by. Um, but it's what I would think is kind of a depressed town, or is at least depressing to drive through. And I don't know what their industry is, but it's kind of a depressing place. A lot of rundown. A lot of that's where my my brother moved there, and uh, not long after we graduated, nice. I think that's the first cool. place he ever tried meth. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, and that doesn't mean everybody that's there is on meth, but it's just uh, to, to kind of paint a picture. And then the surrounding area like the is snake? the anaconda. Like the place is there. Anaconda like the that snake. normally. My anaconda what? That, my anaconda what? Don't. Yeah. Like, I, yeah I don't know how the song goes. But God, I, but I remember I liked the music video a whole lot. But go ahead. I don't know. <laughs> um, so those two places that are normally, I don't think, a hot hot place to buy or hot place real estate selling those are the places that people are from out of state are coming yeah we'll take it sight unseen so it's it's almost like a desperation of people it sounds like people how far how far you spell but with an e at the end yeah why is it i know i know exactly there's a butte california too kind of near that's why i'm familiar with how it's spelled but uh so but e was uh uh is it close to Missoula? How far of drive is it? Hmm. I think it's an hour you know, and a half. People might be just thinking it's comparable in beauty and, and what it has to offer that Missoula does in the sense of the actual outdoor activities and, and the lifestyle as far as that's concerned. Um, mm-hmm. And if truth is, if you get enough wealthy people to or well to do enough people to move into that area area it'll get it'll revitalize it and that downtown can get pretty spring chickeny again you know maybe maybe what you need to do is open up a nice little restaurant bar grill (laughs) in downtown butt and and uh call it the butt bar and grill and uh, make some quiche for these newcomers because they're going to want a place to hang out and do their thing, watch their sports or whatever it's going to be, you know, to smoke their cigarettes. Yeah. And to look sophisticated around each other. That reminds me of a joke I just came across. <laughs> Give it a breath. Give it a breath. Uh, I think it was on Friday or it was maybe it was earlier this week. It fucking is so funny. It's so funny. I'll tell it. It's not mine, obviously, but it goes. A chicken gets into bed with an egg. A chicken gets into bed with an egg. They fuck. Afterwards, chicken lights a cigarette, turns the egg, and says, well, I guess that settles that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, lights a cigarette. That's funny. The chicken lighting a cigarette. The imagery is funny. Because that's... I, I like that. That's what you you think. Well, about I, I get the punchline, right? Chicken it, it, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's brilliant. What comes but, first, chicken or the egg? I guess that settles that. Well, I, guess I guess that, that settles, settles that. And I love how it, it, you, we don't know still from the joke. We don't know who came first. You know, I guess we're we're assuming maybe the chicken uh, is so cocky about it, but or she perhaps, but. Uh, uh, <laughs> But uh, uh, but you still don't know. That's just kind of funny. But anyways, you know, the lighting, the cigarettes, a funny imagery. And that was a total thing in before cigarettes became uber taboo is having a cigarette after sex. And I don't understand that because I've never been addicted to cigarettes. You know, so I don't I enjoy a good cigarette, but. Having one after, like, what is that? Do you have a, yeah. 
Oh, I mean, I don't. Sm- I have don't you ever smoked a cigarette before? Cigarettes never have, but yeah. I'm guessing. It, have I ever smoked oh. a cigarette? Yeah, I th- I think I have. I've been. Uh, I don't think I have. I have. I've been. You know, drunk situation. You're you're out oh, drinking. Oh, that's the best. What, whatever. I only, dr- like, I only oh, yeah, smoke largely when I'm out yeah. drinking with strangers. You know, cigarettes. That is, or on the golf course. Exactly. You're a, you're a typical college girl. Uh, yeah, exactly. I only exactly. smoke when I'm drunk. No, exactly. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, the cigarette after sex. It's a silly I don't know if that's thing. one of those just old old things, or if it's like a a form of relaxation for. Yeah, it might be something like well, somebody might just smoke regularly, and that's just something it, they would do anyway. But so cigarettes are a stimulant. Like smoking a cigarette after yeah, sex. So I don't find maybe it relaxes you in the sense that you built up so much tension. Right before the sex, you release it. Right, because you, you you hopefully you 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 will you will you have arrived, and then the extra the, the uh, extra releasing of of, of the double high is, is the double yeah the, top, the icing on the cake is that cigarette afterwards. You're just like ah, the dopamine drip, the double dopamine. That might be. That's actually. That might yeah. be it. It might be like an extra boost of a. Well, because it starts to it starts dopamine. to scratch I don't, I don't know nicotine, you, right? Nicotine. If you don't get dope. your your nicotine, if you're addicted, right? Huh. And you don't want that nagging at you while, uh, uh, yeah, you know, while you're trying to enjoy your postcoital bliss. And uh, that being said, you don't want that nagging on you while you're trying to enjoy your your the coitus while it's happening, right? Maybe it's like having to take a piss while you have, like, it just doesn't happen. It gets blocked out while you're doing the business, you know, like that nagging is like, no, we're not the body. Everything is like, we're not acknowledging that that's not real right now. And then afterwards, it's like, fuck, you need a cigarette, you know, maybe it's something like that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps so. I don't know. I, I tend to, I would think that people who are smokers, they just kind of smoke a cigarette after they do anything or especially after oh, it's a, a, a stressful situation of like, you know, oh, I just went through this intense, intense stress. Like I'm going to go out and smoke a cigarette or yeah, I just had sex. Like, you know, I'm going to relax and smoke a cigarette. That, like, they were that remind, do it anyway. Having smoking cigarettes smoke. so, during sex know. reminds me of another joke from Chinatown. Uh, have you seen that movie Chinatown? Jack Nicholson tells this joke. Gosh. Roman Polanski, brilliant filmmaker. No. I know he, he had sex with a pure Lolita, 14-year-old girl, but whatever. She, that was whatever. He's been running. He hasn't been allowed back in this country ever since. Maybe Joe Biden will give him a pardon. Uh... <laughs> Is that... <laughs> Man, I was going to start asking about Christmas. No, no, no but Chinatown, there's a great <laughs> joke. Another rabbit hole, man. <laughs> yeah. The, are, are you the, talking really the quick? Term Lolita, the term Lolita uh, today refers to, uh, didn't I talk about this already oh, okay. in, in, in one of our, maybe not. Uh, yeah, the term Lolita uh, today. No, I don't think so. And it comes from the novel by, by uh, Vladimir Nobokov. I, I feel like the, the accent is supposed to be put on one of the other uh, vowels on Novikov. Nova, Novikov, Novikov. I can't, I can't, okay, never mind. Uh, but anyways, uh, Vladimir Novikov, 
wrote this book in 1957, won National Book of the Year. It's called Lolita. Guy is fucking brilliant, this dude. It's about Humbert Humbert, a professor of poetry, uh, and he's a pedophile. And he falls desperately in love with this 12-year-old girl named, fuck, I forgot her name already. That's her nickname. That's her nickname that he gives her. Is that why it's called? Uh, Oh, gotcha. I, I gotcha. And I never read the book. I've just heard about it. I, I've heard it's, it's insanely well written. Yet, uh, I actually haven't books, finished it, but uh, I've probably gotten to half of it. It's not even a long book, but I've seen the movie by <laughs> by uh, by uh, uh, um, I almost said Sidney Poitier, not him, uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, nineteen sixty three. Extremely controversial topic. Obviously, he cast uh, a girl who was really probably about 18 in the movie. And she's supposed to be 14 in the story. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the novel, she's fucking 12 years old. And, uh, and so he marries the girl's mother to get closer to her. And the mother dies in a tragedy. And then he gets sole guardianship over her. And then he has his way with her, you know. And uh, the way they describe, the way Novikov describes, because it's told in first person, it's Humper Humper is, he's on death row. He's, he's been caught. He's in prison from his cell. He's writing, he's telling his story. So it's in the first person and he's saying what happened and he's explaining himself. He's defending himself essentially, but he's being brutally honest and, uh, and fully, yeah, fully open. Candid. So he, you go into why he's a pedophile and it had something to do. It wasn't like, this might be, this what kind of makes me feel like it might be bullshit or maybe it's not. It's an interesting idea of what makes a pedophile a pedophile. Is it something you're truly born with or is it something that happens to you that perverts your sexual preference at a impressionable age? This would be more that explanation uh something that i actually happen to subscribe to i think it's probably has to do with uh trauma at some sort and and your your sexual preference gets perverted at that age sexual preference is is subconscious but it is it is psychological and it's like you're not we're not born with an innate sexual attraction to shoes to high heel shoes for some of us you know but we develop one Right. And so uh, his explanation was he fell in love with a girl when he was 12 years old and then she died and he became obsessed with her. And he never he always had that 12 year old. He always remembered her as a 12 year old because that's what she was when she died. And he always had her in her heart and his heart rather. And so he developed a preference, a sexual preference for 12 year old girls that reminded me him of that of that young girl that he was in love with when he was 12 and when she was 12, that was the explanation of the book. And then he goes, then he goes in and he, he's obsessed with Lolita. So Lolita Bizarre. in today's terms, when we say, Oh, she was a real Lolita. It, it's, uh, it's a, a young girl who is sexually, pr- uh, um, precocious. 
and or advanced. Uh, um, so like, I, I, I think I, I thought I talked about this in the podcast with you already. My brother, Matthew dated a Lolita, a straight up Lolita. When he was 14, she was 14. She looked 25 and gorgeous, beautiful young girl. And, uh, you know, some, yeah, so that would have made me 10. She would have right? been older than you. So then. maybe I perceived her, but even of her, she just looked like a, she looked like a woman. She was developed breasts, everything I'm telling you. And, uh, so anyway, I won't go into the particulars or dirty details about, about that situation, but, uh, I've seen them that it's real. There are young girls who develop earlier than most and are essentially, and, and, and they're boys, there's boys too. I remember there were, we had kids in junior high. Remember big Ben at our junior high at Carnegie. He was a great older than us. So he was like 14 or something, but he was already shaving and he was like six two, one eighty nine, 189, you know, 190 something, whatever. It's like a big fucking, he was a man, you know, already. And so that happened. Good, good friend of mine, Clint Whitney, he, he went to high school and was closest friend. And I, I met him once. His name was David. He looked 40 fucking five years old as a 17 year old. Seriously. And so, I mean, it happens. I wonder if you went back and looked at a picture of him now, if he w- would still really look old, though, if that was yes. just in your mind. You're like, oh, yes. 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 You know, it's like, it's like the, you know, he was able to go in and buy the, buy the booze whenever he, and nobody would ID him, you know, cause it's not even, it wasn't even a fucking question that he was underage, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so no, the, he had a full blown goatee, you know, the whole five o'clock shadow, just old looking, you know, very mature for, for certainly a 17 year old. So, um, it just happens. Some, some people mature ex- ex- freakishly quicker. And, uh, you know, I wasn't like that. I, I told you I matured quick when I wasn't that I, I, I didn't look like a, a grown man in high school, you know, or yeah. even shortly thereafter. No, fuck no. Right. I still don't look like a grown man. Are you kidding me? But, uh, so <clears throat> that's, uh, it's just some, some people, but anyways, so that's what a Lolita means. Somebody, it's a, it's a girl, an underage girl who looks like a grown ass woman or behaves like one too. I guess sexually precocious means, you know, advanced and in, in her knowledge and behavior, I guess. And uh, anyway, that we were talking about uh, Roman Polanski. That's how we got out of that. So he got into trouble with a Lolita in a spa back in Hollywood in the seventies or eighties or some shit, I think. Ah, these fucking creeps, man. Yeah. But before that he wrote, he did Chinatown. Chinatown's brilliant. And Jack Nicholson tells this hilarious joke that I don't want to do over the podcast. (laughs) If you haven't seen that, have you seen Chinatown? No, I don't even know. I'm not even sure what that is. You said Jack Nicholson's and obviously, but I'll, uh, Chinatown. It's, it's a brilliant film. So Roman Polanski's claim to fame is probably the first thing he did that was a big deal. It was probably Rosemary's Baby, right? Which is about a woman giving birth to the seed of Satan. You ever heard of that one? No. Mia Farrow, I think. It's 1969 it came out. And uh, maybe 68. But uh, she 
is engaged to be married or she, she's a newlywed with a husband, but then she has these nightmares at night and uh, the little flash images. And it's like this demonic monstrous dude all over her ravaging her. And she wake up with the, like having sex with her. And then she would have these scrape marks when she'd wake up and she'd feel like it was just a dream, but then she'd see these scrape marks and she's not sure. And it's like this mystery and it's driving you crazy. And she's pregnant all of a sudden. And she's and it's like, oh, we're pregnant. And that husband's happy. And, and she's just feeling really strange about it. And she's getting all these bad omens. And eventually at the end, that's the big twist. She poops out uh, uh, a, little, a little devil, like an like a evil demon-looking baby with a bifurcated tail and all that shit, man. Scales. And so, uh, <clears throat> I'm look really, really quick. I'm looking at this. What's I should have spoiler. I should have done a spoiler alert. Sorry. Pete. What's up? Yeah. I was going to say, maybe, <laughs> I, maybe I shouldn't ask. This. I was going to say, what's up with Jack Nicholson's nose just for, I know people, anybody listening can't see this, but I can see his I, nose. I can see it in my mind, but, but I'm, yeah. I'm looking up the movie on Google and I guess anybody can just Google it, but what's up with his bandaged nose? Oh, lately he's got a bandaged nose. No, in the movie he's got a bandaged nose. Oh, if, in, if it's something, Chinatown. if it's something you give away, don't uh, don't. It happens it. pretty early in the movie, you know. But yeah, it's just a, it's an injury he sustains in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about he's a private detective. It takes place either in the nineteen twenties or early nineteen, or maybe post World War Two. Somewhere in that range, L.A., Los Angeles. He's a private detective. Um, he's taken dirty, nudie pictures of a, of a wealthy movie producer or something, uh, uh, you know, having an affair. Uh, that's kind of how it starts. And he gets um, Mia or uh, Faye Dunaway's in it. She contracts him to, do an, to investigate on... Uh, I can't remember, but it ends up being this massive conspiracy citywide having to do that goes all the way up to like the, the, the L.A. water district and the scheme to get the water from this reservoir it, that in like Arizona or something to siphon it over to, to supply L.A. And so it's kind of like an origin story to say, well, how did L.A., this shit area, end up getting enough water? to supply the millions and millions of people it does today. And it's like, it's kind of that, that little, a lot of backdoor dirty dealings had to happen to uh, occur to make that happen is the idea. And he's kind of in the middle and he under uncovers it, I think, or he does, I don't know, but it's a mystery and Roman Polanski films. Again, not a fan of the guy personally, you know, if he did the crime, he should do the time. I believe that. But I'm also someone who believes in separating the art from the artist. You don't blame the child for the sins of the father. You know? Yeah. And art and art works are certainly the progeny of, of their of the artist. And so uh yeah, uh I, I'm a as far as his works, I mean it's undeniable to me. He's he's fucking brilliant. He's one of the all time he's still alive, but he's one of the all time great filmmakers in history. Um, hate him or love him and Chinatown's brilliant all his films what he does so what he does better than anybody is his 
his absolute strict, almost, it's almost like a, a, a tenant of his religion, how obsessed he is with detail. Everything has to be perfect. So the story worlds that he builds are so nuanced and intricate and detailed and subtle that you're just drinking in the screen the whole time you're watching it. Hmm. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like we like Quentin Tarantino films for me, at least I like Quentin Tarantino films for a number of reasons, but one of them is nobody writes dialogue like him. You can hear his voice in every character and the long, the long style dialogue where there are two characters philosophizing at each other. That's interesting and, and fun. Uh, so that's a note, but he also likes to add in that aesthetic of someone eating something to say, hmm. uh, 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 wait for the clam, you know, and, uh, you know, the, oh, yeah, the strudel, yeah. the apple strudel yeah. with the cream and glory and glorious bastards. Right. Or, you know, the milkshake and Pulp Fiction, or there's always the, the cheeseburger too. And you wait yeah. and you see him and you, you look at that cheeseburger and he takes a bite and it makes you, fuck, I want that cheeseburger, you know? Um, and it, it's that there's one where uh, there's a scene that I'm thinking of right now from Django where Christoph Waltz's character, I can't think of his name, but the German dentist, bounty hunter, uh, he shoots the the sheriff of the town and everybody goes running ah. out because what happens is the bar owner's angry that they have Jamie Foxx and they're a black man, right? And right. Hey, he ain't allowed to be in here or whatever. And then, yeah. and then <laughs> the sheriff comes and says, all right, you've had your fun. You need to leave now. Can't get that. Get your nigger out whatever he says. And he just shoots him with like a, with like an up his sleeve pistol. And it comes out, bang, and kills him. Everybody's like, oh, they run. They go get the whole other, you know, posse from the U.S. you know marshals or whatever. But in that time while he's waiting, they he helps himself to the saloon and he goes behind the bar and he serves up and he pumps out two loggers. And just that yeah. process, you're hearing the noises, the sounds, you're seeing it done. And you're hearing the pour and, 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 the, and, the, and the bubbles come up. And then he uses that, that tool or whatever that scrapes off the, the excess foam from the top. It's like the aesthetics of that, of that part of that scene. You just want to devour it. And it's extremely detail-oriented and it makes it all the more scrumptious. right? So I really appreciate filmmakers who are able to get – it's almost ASMR for me. You know, I'm definitely susceptible to ASMR. So what's ASMR? Uh, I don't know. It's an acronym that says auto sensory something, whatever. Basically, I think uh, basically, I think I'm picking up. I'm picking up what you're putting down because the fact that you, you know, kind of consciously notice that thing. Like, I obviously, I, I just watched uh, both Inglorious Bastards and Django and Chain not that long ago, um, and I hadn't seen Django and Chain in a long time. Um, but yeah, the fact that you notice that and recall that opposed to, you know, like I, I've seen Pulp Fiction so many times. Of course, I remember the milkshake and the cheeseburger scene, mm-hmm. but that still doesn't stand out to me other than it's just kind of funny that, you know, Samuel, more Samuel Jackson's mannerisms is eating it. Mm-hmm. Right. That is a tasty burger. Well, you hear the, but, crunk, uh, the crumpling of the, of the paper 
that's wrapped around the wrapping of the burger, I think. Like those little details shouldn't be lost for filmmakers who are trying to make some. Again, when I try to write but, yeah. a story or write a story, to me, the, the number one rule is authenticity, especially when it's a fictional story. Mm-hmm. So you, you need something like, to ground the story in that. Yeah, I think, okay, go ahead. You're going to say something. No, sorry, sorry. Um, the, uh, I can distinctly remember him in the bar scene now that you're saying go, go back. He goes behind the bar and he's, um, he's, he's getting the beers. But yeah, it's like very, very uh, detailed of how he's doing it. Like they, like they made a point to say this. <laughs> here's how you poured the beers. How you poured them back then. I think is there like a foot pedal or something he was using or am I making that no, up? No, it's – Maybe I don't remember if you've as, ever, much as well as I thought. No, yeah. If you've ever seen uh, – like an old style, old style. If you go to like an English style style pub, and you try to get like an old speckled hen or some type of like real English ale at a pub, they they have these like uh, Fuller's uh, extra uh, extra ESBs or porters or whatever. Uh, uh, Boddingtons do, do this, um, but it's it's one of those like it's it's got a pump for a handle. So like when you do a draft beer, you have those little handles there. And I think that's based upon these old classic machines of how you used to serve beer. You don't really need to have those handles anymore. And those levers, you could have it be a twist knob where you just put the latch to the right and it opens the valve up and it pours out the draft, right? And then you can close it again if you want for those things. But in the old days before that, to pump out the the beer from the keg they actually had a mechanism where it was a handle and you had to pull it and and crank that that lever and it would come out the tube which is which was um curled it was like a curly q or whatever almost like a snaked it snaked its way and shape formed perfectly to have uh, a glass fit in there to put to put a mug or you know ale glass or whatever and so you'd pump it one pump would pour out uh, a good amount of of uh, beer. Think of it like this way: at a uh, those water, uh, what are they called? Those water. Ever seen those where they you used to? You'd have to crank out, and there's like a Wild West. You know, if you wanted to get water, they'd be cranking out this lever in the well. Yeah, out of a whatever, and then it would, it would pour out. It was a pumping system, a pumping apparatus. Oh, yeah, like a um, yeah, same a principle. Spouse. Yeah, same principle but for a beer keg. And that's what you were watching. And that's how they used to do draft beers. It had to be done that way. And if you again, if you go to some old-style authentic English pubs like Bon Lair, shout out in Isaac, my favorite probably bar, one of my Easy top three favorite bar and stack. Uh, they have like three of them, three or four. And I think, yeah, I think they have at least three. And they used to have the old speckled hen, and that's a give me an old speckled hen, and they'd pump it out of the old fashioned drafter pump. But yeah, you'd pull one, you'd pull the lever once and pump out, and then when you put, pulled it back or whatever, it would it would spout out. Out the spout would come out the first. You know, bit of beer, and then you do it again, and you do it again. I don't know, three, four, five pumps, maybe. I don't know how many pumps it takes to fill it. Fill probably three pumps to fill a fill a, a glass, a pint. But yeah, that's all he was doing, huh? 
I just said, I don't know. That was yeah, way too to long take. and shittily done because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> um, I can't remember how we started talking. We were, about we were that, talking about but... the aesthetics of, in filmmaking that attention uh, to detail yeah. Yeah, yeah. is extremely important to the authenticity of the world one and just for the aesthetic pleasure of the film, film watcher of the audience. Right. And, right. Yeah. And Roman, Roman, and, uh, Roman Polanski is really good at that as well. And I remember uh, th- this might be going further down a rabbit hole on a sidetrack, but I remember when the movie um, Django and chain first came out, it was, I remember everybody being so focused on how many times Quentin Tarantino used, uh, used, used the N word in the mm. film. And I think everybody was taking it's like, Oh, he's a racist. He's this and that. And I get, this might be a, too sensitive of a subject to get into in 2020 <laughs> but but that's watch again, by the way I that's I sad because the, uh, it's not like I, I i don't think this this com- what you're bringing up the topic you're talking i think you're bringing up which is i'm bringing up to talk about films oh, okay, just uh, just talk about what what his what i think his purpose was with it and i don't think it was to be like just it's a, about a, authenticity a, if you're gonna if you're gonna write a yeah. story and tell a story about the antebellum south to have those slave masters not use the vernacular that they truly used back then is a de- is a departure of of from authenticity of the reality, and you're doing a disservice right. in my mind. Is it hard to listen to? Is it hard? To, I found Django Unchained very hard to watch for a lot of it. Very hard to watch. Yeah, quite frankly, it's not one yeah. of my favorite uh, Quentin Tarantino films for that reason. It's just so hard to watch. Um, yeah, but. Uh, but yeah, I don't criticize and, for and it. the rea- the reality of it. If somebody's 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 somebody being used as property, and somebody's wife being used as property, and and you know, in a in a sense, you you having Jamie Foxx's character having no control over. It. Yeah, it was oh, kind of a. It was kind of honestly, it was kind of heartbreaking watching it a second time around because I hadn't seen it in years, and I don't I don't remember what I thought of it years ago when I watched it. I was probably like, huh, Quentin Tarantino movie violence, whatever. I mean, I did- um, that's a but mark of a great yeah, story. Sorry to interrupt you, but that's a mark of a great story. Is that you, you can you can get that out of a out of out of your audience, where you kind of make them yearn or hurt, and uh, and that's kind of the intention of of a lot of stories. You have cautionary tales, and you have you have tales that that say, "Hey, remember how fucked up this is? Let's not forget, and let's not make these same mistakes again." I mean, that's the whole point of learning your history so we don't repeat the same mistakes and you have to be honest about that history if you don't want to fall for the same mistakes if you start looking at it with rose-colored glasses or you refuse to look at certain things because it's too deep well you're liable to be ignorant to certain facts uh, of that history and that means you're bound to repeat those same mistakes again by by that that reason reasoning but um you know, it's slavery. Slavery could, in, in a lot of ways, arguably slavery. I mean, didn't we talk? I, we did talk about this too before. They estimate there are more slaves in America today than there were during the end before the Civil War. I don't think we talked yeah. about this. I think you're mixing me up. They with estimate else. there's more slave if you count sex slaves. And oh, human trafficked gotcha, individuals. Gotcha. There are more slaves today in America than there were back. Uh, could you mean imagine being chained to some dungeon? You know, and uh, it's just fucked up. 
Yeah, go that, ahead. That was a, yeah, that was another thing that uh, in the dude, the sex trapping, all that. That's fucking heartbreaking. The, the things that humans will do to each other is uh, it just blows my mind sometimes. And just how do how do people get that deranged and messed up? But that's it's another story. I'm not a psychologist. I don't I don't have the answers. Um, we talked about it before. Uh, sociopathy, man. Is a sociopathy, yeah. psychopathy. They can be yeah. uh, virtues in the animal kingdom, you know, in the uncivilized world. And yeah. get ahead, get ahead at any yeah. cost. And yeah, well, um, go ahead. Yeah, that's pretty evil in my book. But um, <laughs> I'd say, uh, um, but no, I, I would just just to argue um, again for against any you know against that that movie being racist by that by the amount of times that that word is used i would say that christopher waltz character christoph as well christoph waltz. i like that it's not yeah he's christoph german. Waltz. it's not christopher? He's german it's christoph, christoph? Yeah. okay i'd have to uh, I'm, I'm not gonna fact check you but um do it, christoph do it. you'll waltz. be proven wrong I like <laughs> um i'll do it when we're talking but his his character who you know who the whole time is is um pretty much trying to help out uh, Jamie Foxx's character, the slave and find his wife. And obviously has other reasons behind it, but in the end he's, you know, he stands up to the slave owners and, and says like, hey, this, this is wrong. I don't like, I don't agree with you. And, and he's willing to essentially die for, uh, <laughs> for, for what he believes in, which is that these slave owners are wrong and that they're basically human trash for the way they're treating these human beings. And I, I liked that about the movie. I actually, character that's the part that lost me in the movie is okay so his pride because what happened after that after that point in the movie it is christoph i know yeah i know okay yeah okay i'm a massive fan of his so yeah anyway he's he's austrian as well just like okay cool okay yeah i'm kind of i said he was german but i guess he's austrian same thing I mean, Austria is in Germany. It, no, yeah. it's it's its own country, but it's Germ- It's the same peoples. They're just southern. They're like Bavarians. They're, it's just on the other side of the Alps from Bavaria, and uh, they're more. I think they're Catholic and they're Germanic people. They speak German. That's what they do. Uh, but yeah. Anyway, so no matter. Yeah. Why don't you? Why didn't you? I didn't. That that, like that was the his... point in the movie where it really starts to lose me. It, it starts to. Uh, it's just kind of like an inglorious bastards when, uh, <clears throat> you know, they're just they blow up the 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 theater and and he shoots he shoots Hitler or they the the two uh, Jewish fellows with the MP40s just shoot Hitler like fucking sixty times in the face with the bullets until he's mush and then everything blows up right it's like that didn't happen it's un- it's clearly a departure from reality. And what it was is just like uh, hate porn, right? And that's kind of where it goes to um, in Django after that point. It's, it was too much. Uh, uh, it, I thought it was just a departure from the character is what I'm saying, I guess. It, it just, I don't know if I bought it. I, so his pride was hurt because they were working the scheme to, to do one better on because the whole plan was they're going to go there act like they wanted what was d'artagnan one of the fighting slaves and so, yeah and then while he was there change his mind and say you know what i don't want d'artagnan but you know who i really t- have taken to would you mind selling me that that maid 
house girl that you have who speaks German because I never get to speak German. And uh, yeah. she really took, would you mind selling her to me for, uh, you know, and what's her ever value is selling the market. So what happened was he, he caught on because of Samuel Jackson's character. And this is another reason why it isn't racist. In my opinion, Samuel Jackson in an interview handled that question. And he says, I don't think Quentin Tarantino's racist. Yeah. He uses the N word a lot throughout his movies, but if he was truly a racist, why would he make his most intelligent, characters black characters like the guy pulling all the strings in Django isn't Leonardo DiCaprio the guy behind the curtains really uh, uh, Samuel Jackson's character you know yeah he's kind of giving he's, he's, kind of he's the one who catches on goes, who figures out what's really going on lets Leonardo DiCaprio know what's going on. at the end he drops his cane he's like yeah it was an act he got me you know blah blah, blah. so he was the mastermind in so many ways uh, <clears throat> behind foiling their plan, that is. And uh, uh, so that was his explanation. Like, yeah, that's that. You couldn't tear tears that racist. It's just ridiculous. But <clears throat> anyway, you might be able to say the use of the word got to the level of gratuity. It was just too much. It's like, eh, it's starting to sound like you're liking to use this word a little too much, you know? And that right. might be interesting. I don't know. Maybe because it's so verboten that when you finally get the past to do it because of the context of which you're using it, and in this case, a, a film to decry the horrors of slavery, uh, go gangbusters and you can't help yourself. Right. I don't know. Uh, Cause it's, you normally can't use the word. And so um, I don't know, maybe, but uh Yeah. Anyways, I, I, I thought back to Christoph Waltz's decision to fuck everything up, essentially. Okay, so you're, you're instead of paying the reduced price for the value of, of Jamie Foxx's wife that would normally get at the marketplace, you're now paying the premium $15,000 or $1,500 or whatever it is uh, that you would for a, 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 fighting, a fighting slave like you were planning on buying. You have to pay it in full. And oof, maybe that really chats your ass. You got, but that's his pride getting in the way. And what he did in the end was get his little sneak pistol out of his sleeve, shoot Leonardo DiCaprio, and basically sacrifice himself, which is a fair enough trait. But he's also just fucked everything up for Jamie Foxx and his, and his wife. And they didn't volunteer for that. And in fact, his character gets pissed, right? And... uh because they were on their way out. They were good. You did it. You know? Um, but I don't know. He was so bothered. He hates. He's disgusted. The guy got the better of him. He was just like, fuck it. I'm killing this guy. I guess that works. It, but it, the, the what happened, the sequence afterwards went straight hate porn on on the South, right? On, on Southern slave owners and stuff. And... Uh, Although not the most admirable people and all that stuff, I'm not one who gets off on hate, really. That's just not me. I don't, you know, there's some detestable people out there and all that stuff. And, and I understand. And, and, but I don't, I don't think it's he that's a healthy fair. exercise. And that's yeah, fair. And no, that's it. Uh, Good. Um, I think uh, this is just a theory of mine. So I don't, um, 
I don't know. I don't know if it's true. I don't know Quentin Tarantino, so <laughs> I don't know what his intentions were. But if I think of Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, I think a common theme that they do have, how how uh, large or small it is, is revenge mm-hmm. a little bit. Hey, oh, oh, a Kill Bill. It's all about revenge. Yeah, yeah, re- yeah. Revenge. Um, How's Pulp Fiction revenge in your in your mind? Uh, I mean, I guess there's there there is elements of revenge. In Pulp Fiction. Uh... Pulp Fiction, I guess. Actually, that's a good question. I guess Pulp Fiction has a lot of different instances of revenge. You have uh, Marcellus Wallace getting screwed with and, you know, him sending the guys to uh, prove a point that, hey, don't mess with them. And they, you know, the opening scene is them, them uh, okay. mur- murdering the dudes. For, is that, for do you think that's revenge or is that just what a crime boss needs to do to people who <laughs> screw him over? That's a good point, and maybe that, yeah, maybe that's not the not the best example. But then you've got the uh, the weird uh, the gimp scene where Bruce Willis and Bruce Willis is going to get away scot scot free, and he comes back to uh, to uh, rescue the Marcellus Wallace, who is just you know pretty much had a, a bounty or whatever on his head. But he's like, yeah, I'm not going to stand for this dude getting raped by these two weird hillbillies. So he goes back in and saves him. Revenge on the the weirdos. Is that, is that revenge um, too? And there is talk, like Marcellus Wallace is going to get his revenge. He's going to get some, what's it, what's it called? He's going to get medieval on his ass, hard pipe hitting niggas yeah. or whatever he says. And, and yeah. uh, so there's definitely a hint, like, oh, we are going to, we can rest assured he, he's going to get his revenge, and that's satisfying. So I guess that works. And the line was so cool, right? I'm going to get medieval on your ass. What's, yeah, he's gonna, he's gonna like the Inquisition. He's gonna, he's gonna put him up on the rack. You know, oh my gosh. I'm gonna take a go to work on the homes with a pair of pliers, pair of pliers and a blowtorch. Blow torch. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's what. Well, he, maybe, uh, maybe Pulp Fiction isn't the greatest example because honestly, I'm drawing a blank now that I try and think of a, a true revenge scene. But Inglorious Bastards, well, I think of the revenge. I think of. Um, you know they're using Hitler as the character. That's that, revenge, like you said. They Hate they go overboard. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. they go overboard. Yeah, they go overboard mutilating him with you know just dumping rounds into him from the. Uh, I think they're using Thompson submachine guns when machine they're all going to blow up. Machine pistols, forties, machine pistols, Germans. Uh-uh. No, aren't they using? Because they infiltrated Germany, oh. so they're and they're wearing. I mean, they they were using nothing essentially, but. Uh, uh, as soon as they cross over enemy lines, nothing but the German army uh, um, weapons and shit, you know. I would have sworn there's a scene where they've got a Thompson with them. It doesn't matter. Again, that's not my, that's not my point. And, uh, I, I, again, I'm detail-oriented. <laughs> they were MP40s. But they, at least when they were gotcha. using, I don't gotcha. remember seeing a Thompson at any particular point. Uh, it was largely just, yeah, MP40s. But, mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, you've got the Hitler and that, and then in the uh, who you know who at at one point I'm sure the the whole world or even me watching that movie as a younger kid is like yeah like I'm seeing Hitler get fucking mutilated maybe that's the maybe that's the story everybody would have really liked you know the alternate ending oh, no, to, I, uh, I get it yeah Hitler, if, uh, I mean it's a, mm, a lot of oomph to and it. then the same I was <laughs> gonna say was for the you know slave 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 owners in the South and. Um, and Django Unchained is like, hey, this is what we really would have liked to happen was just freaking go, most recent go one, crazy too. on them. Once upon a time in Hollywood. 
we, yeah. we, we, yeah. we, we have an alternate ending that was to what really happened too. in history for the fairy tales. Hey, once upon a time, in, like, like a fairy tale. Brilliant. One of my favorite Quentin Tarantino films by far. Uh, and the ending, the alternate ending to what really happened, how that was played and done. Just really brilliant. I, I hands down, uh, or I have to applaud Quentin Tarantino for that one. Just excellent. The whole time you're just dreading what we all know is the ending of this story. And then it doesn't happen. We get the different ending. And uh, there's comedy involved, as fucked up as it is. You know, I saw I had a torture, you know. <laughs> It's all it's all established and pre-developed and developed, you know. So it works. It just works, and uh, it's just really great, really great movie. And uh, my favorite scene is the one where yeah. I, did we talk about this? This is good filmmaking. It, it's kind of like Hitchcock never showed the knife going in. Didn't actually show any gore in in Psycho or in these movies. The anticipation was. And, and the buildup and development was really the, the true treasure to any great scene. And so uh, in Quentin Tarantino with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you got the scene where Kurt Russell's complaining to DiCaprio's character about Brad Pitt's character saying, no, 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 no. I can't have him on the set, man. He can't be here. Why not? You know, because he's not, he's kind of, oh, come on, get them, give him a job. He's my number one guy. And he goes, all right, you want to know what it is? Sheila can't stand me. He gives her the fucking creeps. He gives her the fucking creeps. And, and, and uh, he's like, what? For what? Oh, because the killed his wife's thing? Come on, that didn't happen. I'm just saying, it's weird. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then it cuts to and it shows the scene where he comes up from spear fishing. He's got his harpoon in his hand and on the boat and they're in the middle yeah. of nowhere in the boat yeah. and, the, and the wife is just unloading on him and he, he cracks open his beer and he's looking at her and he's just getting this wry look in his eye and, and that harpoon's pointed right at her. And then you can just see and again, anticipate him just, you know, I think she, I think she got the point, you know, that line from Thunderball, uh, uh, you know, just shooting her with a harpoon, harpooning her. And then it cuts, it cuts. Right at that moment, you think he's about the harpooner and it's a mystery. But imagine if he if if he just played out the scene and he showed the harpooning, if that's what happened, wouldn't it be so funny? I laughed. I literally laughed after it cut away. But if he actually showed the harpooning, I would have been like, oh, shit, you know, fuck, I wouldn't have laughed. Yeah. And so it's interesting. And that's quality filmmaking. That's what that is. That's quality filmmaking. And uh, it's all about development, anticipation. Anticipation is big. And uh, mystery, mystery and anticipation walk hand in hand in storytelling. And so, yeah, anyway. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Um, one, how we went down that topic i still haven't asked you any christmas questions yet and that's fine i'm kind of you know me i'm a scrooge anyway. i hate christmas um so i'm actually really happy but, it's ruined uh, this year yeah it's the one so one's point of joy i'm getting is that christmas is ruined and i just 
smiling. But the downside yeah. is my favorite holiday is the one that's directly after Christmas. It's uh, New Year's Eve is my favorite holiday. And that one's ruined. And that one's fucking bumming me out. It's not 100% ruined. I'm still going to, you know, me, um, I'm going to hopefully have a good time still somehow. <clears throat> I won't get into what exactly, but uh, that's the hope. And um, so it still might pan out, but it's definitely not your conventional New Year's Eve where I'm out, you know, partying somewhere, you know, where it's a big celebration all around the world. That's, that's incredible. One day a year, every year, the whole world is celebrating. At the same time, partying. Isn't that incredible? That's the, it's the best fucking holiday. Yeah. You know, there are some people who are downers who are depressed about the new year because, you know, it reminds them of, of time fleeting and, and the, their inevitable death. And, and also if they made year, uh, yearly goals, how they didn't accomplish it and how they're fucking losers. So I get that. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, for most people, it's not that. For most people were pretty fucking stoked. And so um, I used to be that way. I'm starting to want to go Jehovah's what Witness. Do you mean? I cut you off. Just not. Are you thinking about anymore. converting to, to becoming a Jehovah? No, no, <laughs> no, no. I'm just. Uh, oh, not, I think yeah, I'm just. Uh, I think I'm just a. I'm just a selfish prick who's uh, who doesn't want to doesn't want to shop or participate in Christmas this year. The consumer that's what, that's what gets me um, about. It's one of the things I hate about Christmas. Right. Grew up, love Christmas. Christmas was probably my favorite holiday growing up, as it is for every American child from middle-aged, you know, upbringing, because you ask for things and then you would get it. You know, makes you happy. And uh, <clears throat> my favorite Christmas all time was, I think it was either seven or eight years old. One of the two, I got, I got all the trimmings, man. I got the, like the, the remote control car track set thing, you know, board game. I may have gotten some desk. I wanted a desk cause I wanted to feel like an adult. Right. So I got one of those pieces of shit, you know, plastic laminate kit desks that my dad would put together for me. Uh, I'm a man. I'm a fucking adult. I'm an adult. <laughs> I took it yeah. and threw it to the ground. Is that what you're referencing? That one? SNL digital short with Andy Samberg. Uh, uh, no, what's that? Threw it, threw it to the ground. Oh, no. What's that it's an it's a SNL digital short where Andy Samberg plays like this urban, like hip hop punk kid, right? And uh, so he's like, it's a song, it's like a music video thing. And he goes, I was walking down Broadway. Blah, blah, blah. This guy comes up to me and says, hey, here's the new energy drink. And it's Bobby Moynihan with like a visor from, from like the Jamba Juice or wherever he's working at. And, and Andy Samberg right. is trying to act cool and like, I'm going to use a new, I can't even do it, you know. But he goes, I said, yeah, sure. And he goes, I took it. And threw it to the ground and shows him throwing, taking it and throwing the energy drink sample to the ground. And it, and it like Bobby Moynihan's like, whoa, what the fuck? This guy's crazy. And just kind of stepping back. And then he moves on and then he talks about another instance where he takes something and throws it to the ground. Like one, 
one is like, I'm, I'm in the food market with my girlfriend in the uh, at the farmer's market. She's on a cell phone the whole time, blah, blah, blah. I took a cell phone and threw it to the crowd. Like, it's just, I, I, you have to watch it. I'm not doing the melody properly. I suck at it. But it was one of my favorite yeah. SNL. It kind of suck it. But at one point, go ahead. He, he's, I was going to say, he's, no, he's like a complete jackass. jackass. He gets raped by Ryan Reynolds uh, and Elijah Wood uh, at the end. Penetrated. Uh, but that's how it ends. Yeah. Wow. You should watch it. Wow. I think it's to the ground, SNL, something like that. It's short. It's an SNL short. It's short. It's, it takes about like three minutes to watch. But uh, what were we talking about before then, before you interrupt or before I digress down that horrible rabbit hole that we should forget about? What were we talking about? Yeah, I would like to delete that section, but I don't want to go do the fucking editing. We were talking about Christmas and your desk. I'm an adult. That's what he says. I'm an adult. That's what he says in that. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Well. Gotcha. The creme de la creme, or the piece of resistance, is my grandpa got me a BB gun, my first BB gun, or Red Riding, or, or the Red, Red Rider. That's what I got. That was my best Christmas because I got everything I wanted. It was the best toys, and I was the most elated I've ever been for, for Christmas, right? And, uh, yeah, that's, that's what it's, that's what it's, uh, that was my favorite. But there comes a point, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe around, it's different ages for, for everybody. Some of us, you know, you, you, you get past the toys phase. But when the toys phase ends, whether you're 13, 14, or some, for some of them, 20-something-year-olds are still liking to get video games or whatever. Uh <clears throat> When that passes for you and you stop liking getting toys or you're an adult, you can buy your own shit. You don't need the toys anymore. It stops being so fun. Now it's an obligation. You have to buy everybody fucking presents. And people are getting you shit that you don't really give a fuck about or want. It's just more shit that you have to deal with, you know? And I I, I was on the phone with my sister And and she's not coming down she's just going to stay in seattle and i was just talking to her today and i'm like by the way uh, you're getting nothing for christmas i'm not getting you anything for christmas she's like oh it's okay i understand i'm like you didn't get me anything did she goes actually i did and it's saying i'm like oh it wasn't expensive was it it was kind of expensive and i'm just like fuck now the guilt comes in now i have to think of something to get her and send it to her you know this is why i hate christmas this yeah and that that I don't I don't think that should be how it is, man. It's like I I would value spending time with people more than anybody. That's getting me, anything, my gifts know? are always that. It's like let's share an experience together, you know. And uh, I I'm I'm really bad at picking out presents most of the time. You know, you're supposed to come across things throughout yeah. the year. Say, wow, this is perfect for so and so. Oh, John's gonna love this. I'll buy it. Yeah. Put it in my storage and wait till his birthday or Christmas to give it to him. I just don't do that. I don't do that. Maybe I'm a selfish prick. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't walk around every day when I go shopping and thinking of my friends about what, who would love what. 
you know? And uh, so I don't enjoy that necessarily. And so here I am, I'm scrambling on the online, looking up yeah. Christmas gift ideas. And I'm thinking, these all suck balls. That's all I can think of. This year, it's all about headphones, the wireless headphones, it seems. It's like, really? Okay. They're like the little buds, the earbuds or whatever. But uh, that's what it seems. They're, uh, I don't know what else. It's like, they're just no good ideas for, yeah, go ahead. Well, we, and, and when you get older, most of the people that, most of my adult friends, they um, say my adult friends, like I have young child friends, which I don't, so I don't know why I said that, but most, most people that you know with a job, I guess is a better way to put it, they, at least that I know and I'm thinking of, they buy yeah. everything that they exactly. want or need like all year long. Like most of my friends, it seems like they got packages from their yeah. house every day. Oh, new Under Armour. Shit. If I new, want uh, something, new, a new I'll phone, a new this, a new yeah. that. Like everybody's, yeah. everybody's constantly it. buying right now. Yeah. Everybody's constantly buying stuff right now. Yeah. Myself included. I'm not going to wait till the, <laughs> well, that one day a year. I'll ask for that. Uh, that I can't even think of it. This, this if one Hawaiian shirt I've been, I've been wanting. Cause then I probably want was a like fucking a shirt. And it'd be gone. Somehow it was like impossible to get the thing that you want it most every year, you had to wait till Christmas. Yeah, then we would probably really fucking love Christmas still. We'd be like, oh, wait, that's when I'm going to get my new car or whatever. And uh, Santa's going to deliver it. If Santa Claus was real, was, if Santa Claus was really real and had the power to manifest things with his little elves in his factory to give us the thing we want, all we had to do was be morally uh, uh, sufficient enough to make his good list, okay, and he will now give us a gift of our choosing, then Christmas would be fucking awesome, right? Unless, I mean, do right. you think if Santa Claus is real and he was keeping a list, uh, the Gregory you know, do you think I make the good list or am I on the naughty list? <clears throat> um. I mean, I think you're a pretty good intentioned guy. I, I don't see why you would be on a, on a bad list. Up? You got the coal? I, I think you have good you have good intentions, unless there's something I don't I don't know about you. I mean, you're a pretty good intentioned, well to do guy, pleasant, Thank pleasant you. person. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I think this year probably because of 2020, I've been I've been good. I, I kinda I I don't know I don't know. Yeah, I I'm very discreet. Let me say that very good about being discreet. So people uh, are unaware, I think. You would know. You know about my sins. That's why I asked you. So you think my sins are okay. But uh, largely, you know my sins, I'd say. But... I mean, your, your, your quote-unquote sins are uh, normal. So everybody would be getting the cold. Like yeah. <laughs> so that's my point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all about what your what your intentions are, dude. I mean, if you're uh, if you take a a person that um, is is single and and likes to sleep around, for example, versus a person that is married or in a relationship and likes to sleep around, those are two different two different things in my in my book. It's like what's your what's your intention? <laughs> you're in a relationship, saying you're monogamous with this person, you're sleeping around, or you're single and you like to sleep around and and and. As long as what you do is moral and ethical, but and you are you're not hurting anybody, then right? who cares? Aren't you? And uh, uh, <clears throat> but <clears throat> that's that's really the that's that's for another story, another time we can get into. 
but uh, uh, but I do like yeah. the idea of Santa yeah. Claus being real, and so Black Peter Pedro Pedro Negro or something like that. I can't remember if you watch Collateral. Uh, Javier Bardem's character in Collateral explains to Jamie Foxx about Black Peter, and he's the one who keeps the naughty list. And he puts he puts a piece of coal on the windowsill of the of the bad children, and if they don't clean up their act, uh, uh, he takes them away, and they never come back. Right now, <clears throat> right. I don't want to. <clears throat> I was not raised with that shit. I was not raised with Peter the Black's going to get you, dude. Or Crumpus is that a thing too? Crumpus. I wasn't horrified. I, it was it was purely incentive based. There was no disincentives about uh, Christmas. Like if you're naughty, you're gonna get fucking you're gonna get fucking murked, dude. It wasn't that. It was if you're naughty, you're that actually didn't happen. I never be, I don't think there was ever a time. I honestly believe in Santa Claus, to be honest. So. Uh, for reasons I just I described earlier, because I was the youngest of four. My brother was six years older. And I distinctly remember him saying something like, there's this kid who, and I'm fucking young. He goes, there's this kid who claims he's seen Santa Claus. And he's like laughing. And he's like laughing at this idiot, right? As if he's an idiot. And I'm like, I picked that up. And I think at that point, I must have not believed in Santa Claus anymore. That being said, my parents pretty much wanted credit for every single gift that they got me. They never said, oh, Santa Claus got you the kick-ass gift that we spent a lot of money on. They never did that. They wanted the full credit for it. So, like, who, 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 who do I have to thank? The big guy up in the North Pole, you know, for, 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 the, for the little candy cane in my, in my stocking? I could give a fuck. Right. You know, go have a jolly old day somewhere else. We don't need you here. And uh, my, my parents are going to get me what I want. And uh, so I, I never really cared for Santa Claus. And I don't think I believed I believed in him for very long. And so I don't really remember a time distinctly where I, I literally straight up believed in Santa Claus. I certainly never wrote him a letter or made a list to give to send to Santa Claus in North Pole. I never did that. Did you? Uh, I actually don't remember. I, I must've, I must've at least, uh, at least in my young, young year, years wrote some kind of a letter. So my parents could figure out what we wanted. Well, no, I think everybody does. Wait, I think wait, in preschool, that's did part you write of your, a list your, uh, to give to your, <laughs> your parents daily curriculum or, or whatever to give to your parents to send to Santa Claus? Who was it addressed to? See, I See, never did one. I did maybe a list, to but it was for my parents. It was never for the Santa Claus. I tell my parents what I want. And then they were like, all right, we'll, we'll see if, if you're good. We'll give it to you. Kind of a thing. Like they, I don't think they try to play up the Santa Claus thing because to them, it was more important. The Jesus thing was more important for sure than the Santa Claus thing. And so they might look at the Santa Claus thing like this is pagan bullshit that, you know. So that's one idea. They, <clears throat> the mysterious gift happened a couple times. Like we'd come back from our Christmas trip at our grandparents in Salinas and uh, 
one time we found a PC unwrapped in the bottom, in the downstairs. Like, what's this? And my dad tried to play off like, oh, who knows where this came from? Could it have been Santa? You know, but we were all too old, I think. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah. So, uh, but, you know, I don't think I ever really believed in that shit. We, me, and, me and Sam once convinced a 12-year-old to believe in yeah, Santa Claus. I don't know. <laughs> I take back yeah, my sister. Uh, he was kind of being a brat. And Sam was like, I won't say who this kid is, of course. He's an adult now. But uh, he was he was 12, and he's kind of a brat. And he was like, I don't believe in Santa Claus. My mom already told me he doesn't exist. You know, I already coughed up the, 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 the beans on that one. And Sam just like, really? All right. <laughs> you little shit. You know, he just had it. He wanted to convince this kid. And he was working and talking to him. And uh, I wasn't a part of it until he enlisted me. This was Sam's Woody he had for, to, for getting this kid to believe in Santa Claus again. And, uh, <clears throat> and I'm like, uh, he's like, he's like, Greg, uh, you know, you believe in Santa Claus, right? And I, I'm like, what? And I look over, oh, yeah, yeah, of course I do. What, do you think I'm a fucking idiot? You know, I didn't say the F word, obviously, but whatever. I play along with this trick. He goes, you know, Santa Claus, I know him personally. He would be very upset to hear you say these things. You don't believe in him anymore. And I don't think he's, he's a, oh, baloney, you don't know. So he's like, yeah, I do. I have him right in my phone right here. And I, I think he changed my name on his cell phone, on the address book to Santa Claus, right? And he's like, okay. And he set it up. Go to the other room and pretend like you're Santa Claus. I'm going to call you and you're going to talk to this kid. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I don't know why we did this poor little bastard. But uh, so he calls, he, he's like, I'm calling him. And so he calls him, hey, Santa Claus. And I pick it up and I'm like, oh, oh yes, Sam or whatever. I play the voice. I do the thing. He gives, he gives the kid the phone. I talk to him like I'm Santa Claus. All right. I convince the kid that I'm Santa Claus, that he needs to believe in me and that he should make a list. And that was the conversation. And we found out later that he wrote a, a, a big, I'm sorry letter to Santa Claus and wrote a list to Santa Claus again, like that next, you know, you know, in the ensuing week. So, yeah, that was that's what happened. <sighs> little con artists. We're little wow. con artists. If you laughed something else, I would, <laughs> we uh, laughed. I would we remind laughed you kid. that you we had found me. Out. We enjoyed it. Little now do you think we get the uh naughty list? Huh? We've done some fucked up things in our lives. Yeah, and you reminded me that uh, when Ferris and I were were doing a project in film class, we were asking you guys for uh, oh, we had to do an advertisement classic. or something. We asked you who that was more uh, who the, who's the biggest that was Vincent. who's the biggest track the... person now, and and I, I don't know I don't know shit about track. And you guys, dude, we did the whole thing and get up there in front of the the class and say, "Do you want to sprint what? like John Holmes, no. not knowing who John Holmes is?" And I think you. You, you idiots, oh. and the teacher, the only person who knew what John Holmes was. But, uh, yeah. yeah, you're kind of a shitty person. And I actually, this is a good excuse yes. to, uh, oh, this is a good time that, to end this conversation. First of all, that wasn't me as much as it was Vincent. See, I'm not a purveyor. I don't, 
Well, I'm a, I'm, you, I'm you played along. You played along. You played along. You know, I you don't. If there's a scheme, I'm not going to be the one to to fuck it over, right? And you, you and Alan Jones. Alan was not involved. The sales it was not. It was not in Alan, Alan was in the class. We 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 let him in on the joke. Oh, you just right told before him. your presentation. You just told him. So we he were was all laughing about it. But uh, uh, that was Vincent. You came up to me. You're like, hey, so we're going to do a radio advertisement. Vincent and I were doing a TV advertisement. And ours is awful. Ours sucked. And we thought it was great. It was awful. But you did your, you're going to do a radio ad and you're like, hey, we're going to try to sell uh, equipment based around track, 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 track and field and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. right. We were doing sports. Yeah, it was like a Nike yeah, commercial or something. Nike commercials. And you came to me because I, I was a track star, a sprinter. You're like, who are some great? world-class sprinters and i'm like well you know of course michael johnson i'm carl lewitt like i'm naming off some sprinters and then vince goes oh, john holmes <laughs> and i look over i'm like what the fuck john holmes and then and then he gives me a little wink and i'm like oh yes yes oh yes john holmes john holmes you have to use him he is the biggest deal he's the greatest sprinter of all time. <laughs> he is the greatest sprinter of all time. You're a jackass if you don't mean I, I convince you I sell John Holmes hard. And uh and then later Vincent's like, all right, we got to really put a cherry on this stuff because we're really laughing at the idea of you using him as a world-class sprinter. And we're like, we should say something like he was really good at thrusting off the blocks. He's really known for his thrusts. And so I think I convinced you to use that terminology, that it was a sprinter's terminology. And uh, and then I and then we try to get you to use Ron Jer- Jeremy. Like, oh, another great track star is Ron Jeremy. But you knew who Ron Jeremy is. Like, John Jeremy is a porn star? Yeah. I'm like, no, 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 I'm just joking. That was a joke. Leave him out of it. And, and I... Yeah, and I don't, I don't remember that, but I, I would think that that would have given, but, given your guys. You caught on to Devon Jeremy, right? and I think I just played it off well enough. Like, I was just fucking with you on that one. That one didn't work. But you you, you, you did it. And uh, yeah. that kill. That reminds me of another time. Vincent was a little devious bastard because he got me to steal the batteries out of Mr. Ludovino's TV controller. Mr. Ludovino was a Spanish teacher uh, for <laughs> Spanish one, Spanish two, something like that. It must, yeah, Spanish one, maybe. It was midterms or something, finals or whatever uh, uh, for the semester. <clears throat> and I was in the classroom aside and I was taking my language class. And uh, for I was using the Walkman back then, Walkmans with the heads and, and you used a disc, an actual CD-ROM, right? And I was listening to Mozart or classical music or whatever because I thought that would help me take the test better. Well, my Walkman ran out of batteries. It needed double A's. And I'm, and we're having a break before the class. And it must have been second or third period or something. And I'm telling Vincent about it. He goes, oh, dude, uh, so why don't you steal the ones out of uh, Mr. Ludovino's controller, his little TV controller, right? I think they're double A. And just steal them. Just take them. 
I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, he's not there right now. Go ahead and take him. And I'm like, fuck it. You know what? He's probably doesn't need those right now anyway. He's probably got plenty of bad. All right. And so I go in there. I'm not Mr. Lidovina's class. Never have been. I'm not one of his students. Never was. And I go into to his podium and there's this TV controller. I take out the batteries. And I might, I take out the batteries. That's it. I don't replace them with my shitty batteries. I just leave them high and dry. Okay. Light. And I put it back, the controller back on the podium. And I snuck out there. It was a, it was like a heist, right? Like, Ooh, he was supposed to watch for me, making sure he, he, I didn't get caught. I didn't success. Got to use the batteries, got my music, failed all the tests. Wonderful. Okay. A couple days later, Vincent tells me that he was there, or maybe it was that same class. I don't know that Mr. Ludovino tried to use the controller and it wasn't working. And he was watching him and he was just like giggling to himself. Right. <laughs> and he's like tapping it. He's like banging it, like what's going on here. And then he checks the back and he sees that there's no batteries. And he announces to the class and he goes, uh, I'm missing my batteries. So my, anybody take my batteries <laughs> it's for my remote control and everybody's silent. Nobody says anything. And then I'm laughing about with Vincent or whatever. I think Vincent comes up with this idea too, that I should leave him one of the batteries and write a ransom note for the other one. If he wants to see that. So I write out a note and I tell Mr. Lugovino, I say, Hey, I got your other battery. If you want to see it again, <laughs> You will, you will award Jake Cookson 50 extra credit points. <laughs> this kid in his class is kid was so goofy looking back then and so funny and was not in on it, completely oblivious. And so I, I take the note and I wrap it around the battery and I put it on that podium. And Vincent tells me what unfolds during the class. He said, Mr. Ludovino, Takes it. He's looking at it. Vincent's watching. And he goes, okay, so uh, I just got this note. I'm just going to read it to you guys. It came with my battery, with one of my batteries. Uh, to my, I recognize it. This is one of my batteries to my remote control. And it says, uh, it says, Mr. Ludovino, if you want to see your, I have your other battery. If you want to see it again, you'll give Jake Cookson 50 extra credit points. And he looks at Jake. And everybody looks at Jake. And Jake's like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> no idea. And that would kill me. But that was a good time, man. He's always, Vincent's always coming up with little schemes like that. He's a, little, he's a prankster. Yeah. Yeah. He was always pretty yeah. quick, dude. Quick. Yeah. But hey, man, certainly, we've been uh, that was a good one. almost two hours, um, so I got to get. But Good chat. Good chat. Till next time.